0: Welcome to the If These Walls Could Talk podcast. I am your host, Rachel Usher. I'm an accomplished interior designer and solopreneur, having built my own design practice from nothing into an award-winning and published studio. During my own design journey, I have found the business side of interiors to be secretive and largely conducted from behind the curtain, leaving business owners like myself grappling with the unique complexities of running a design business and often having to learn many things through trial and error. Well, here's the thing. It doesn't have to be that way. This show is designed for design professionals and together with our guests, we demystify the business of interiors. This is the place where we hear from the personal experiences of some of the most talented people that work within the design industry. From entrepreneurs to business experts, together we unravel some of those truth tales about what it really means to not only survive, but to thrive in the creative world of business. Today I will be interviewing Peter Grech of the Spacemaker Interiors. Peter established his company approximately four years ago, having left an established career in medicine to work in the interior design industry. His career change and some of the frustrations and learning points that he has experienced are relatable to many of us. Not least his big decision to move from one very abstract profession to to a different one. He's a rising star. He's been on a TV show, The Design Masters, and he's picking up some awards. Peter is a person to be watched. Hi, Peter. Thank you for being my guest on the podcast today. I'm so pleased that you're here to share your story with me. Would you please introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about who you are?
1: Uh, well, thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you for having me. It's a massive honor to be here. I have heard all your previous episodes and it's very, very exciting. And you've had some amazing guests on. So I, I can only hope to, uh, to reach any of those, the lower echelons of some of your amazing previous guests. Um, so I, my name is Peter. I am the principal director of the Spacemaker Interiors. We are a boutique residential interior design company uh, based in Cheshire, in Altringham, South Manchester, um, for anyone who doesn't know. Uh, and yeah, so I uh, specialize in private residential, um, uh, high-end residential. Uh, and yeah, I've been doing it for A couple of years because I had the previous career, which was my transition into interiors, and it's been going quite well. Won an award, well, won two Northern Design Awards so far, which has been really exciting. Um, And yeah, it's been one hell of a ride so far. So,
0: previous career, and you've come into interior design. Tell us where it all began.
1: So I'm from Malta originally. So um, I grew up in Malta um, and I went to university there. When I was kind of picking at the age of like the young age of 13, I was deciding what special kind of like specialty A levels to take. Um, and um I was quite lucky that I did quite well at school. And basically in Malta there was kind of a kind of a notion that, you, you, you know, my parents were, you know, they're double professionals. So they both um, have double degrees and they were very heavy on the academia. So they were very insistent that I um, got a good degree from university. So they narrowed down my options for me by encouraging me to either become a solicitor, an architect, a doctor, or a um, or yeah. a priest, which is uh, <laughs> the few options that were um, kind of like, Openly say it said to me because I obviously had done quite well. That's so school I was encouraged to kind of get a professional career. Um, and at the time, my father actually is an architect, but I had one of those rebellious kind of teen years, so I did not want to become my father. So, um, because of that, I um went in and did medicine actually. So I did my medical degree in Malta, and then I moved over to the UK to work as a doctor in the NHS.
0: Okay, wow. So you were a doctor in the NHS. Uh, how long did you do that for?
1: So I did that for just over, I think eight, between eight to 10 years, I can't remember to be completely honest. So yeah, eight to 10 years, but basically I was becoming, I was on track to becoming a consultant in emergency medicine. And I was maybe a couple of months away from setting my final exams. And I, I basically I realized that it wasn't making me happy. So I wanted to do something that I said up while I have the rest of my life working in this job. So I wanted to make sure that I was happy doing it. So um, I decided to quit my job as a doctor, as a a senior registrar in emergency medicine, and um, set up my own design company, which was pretty crazy, (laughs) if you think about it. And that was only one year before COVID. So it was uh, pretty uh, awful timing, if you had to really ask. So
0: that's a significant I mean, I made a significant leap, so I understand what significant leaps look like, but it is a very significant leap because um, a doctor in the NHS has really absolute job security and salary security. And then yeah. to leave something like that to really enter the unknown, um, that's, that's really brave. Um, did you know what you were heading into?
1: So I, so I have always kind of going back. I've always been obsessed with properties. Probably a slightly pathological <laughs> obsession. <laughs> I, um, I remember even when being a child, I would be literally my my absolute love. The thing I used to love doing on a weekend would be to get the classifieds and find floor plans and redesign the homes based on those floor plans. That is literally this is me as an eight year old. Like <laughs> if there was someone who was obsessed with it, with the home, then that is me. Um, and it's always been an obsession of mine and it's always been a love of mine, the love of home and the love of making home and nesting has always been very important to me. Um, so interiors has always been priority in my brain whether I was doing it professionally or not. It's always very important to me. Um and I had done an associate diploma in interior design before I embarked on my medical degree and um, as kind of like a tester just to try and see whether or not it was truly a viable option for me. Back in the day there wasn't really an interior design degree in Malta that was available. So I had to do mine via long distance. Um, so I did that and um and then the only other option would be for me to go into architecture in Malta, which, as I said before, because of my rebellious episode, I um, I hadn't done that. So it's kind of led to um, to yeah, to me to me taking a different path entirely, um, but constantly hankering back to interior design, and then. Um, as many people say when they renovate their own home, it kind of kicks starts a fire in them again. And then they kind of say, well, I want to do this for other people. Um, and while obviously I was helping people in my normal job, well, if you call being a doctor normal, but anyway, let's let's pretend it's a normal job. Um, and um, But I wanted to do it with interiors because it was still a passion of mine and still is. So, um, yeah, so then I kind of I decided to throw myself into interior design because obviously I had... The education side of it from a from a kind of what is design, what is concept, what is colour, what is hue, what is, you know, how do you balance light, etc. etc. Um, but as you said, no kind of like true kind of experience working in the interior design field other than obviously having done the course. So it's very, very different. And obviously the steepest learning curve um Ever. But obviously, I've done already, I'd already done a very steep learning curve because when you learn medicine and then you go to work on the wards, it's again the steepest learning curve of your life. So I wasn't afraid of steep learning curves. And yes, it's a very brave thing to do. But in my mind, it was actually quite simple because to be completely frank, medicine was making me quite sad. It was really, I was not happy there. Um, and it was a decision where you either stick with something that you know, but you know you're not happy there, or you choose to do something to change that situation. So I chose to change that situation, and I knew that I had this passion for interior. So for me, it was a very natural and obvious thing for me to do because I was just so in love with it. So I wanted to do that and explore that. And I had, as you said, there was a big risk of going from a secure job to, a, you know, the unknown, effectively. Um, but luckily, um, you know, I had the luxury of still being able to work ad hoc as a doctor for maybe a day a week um, if I needed to financially. And also, I was very, very lucky that my partner was able to support me in that stead until I was able to get enough work so that I was busy enough to, to kind of stabilize myself, which obviously takes, you know, a long time. um. And yeah, I'm, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, I was in a very lucky position to be able to yeah. do that. So I appreciate that, mm. I thankful for
0: that. So you left medicine just before COVID and then obviously COVID put a spotlight on medicine. And it, yeah. in many um, circumstances, it was actually asking for doctors to come back, retired doctors yes. and people that had left. Yeah. Did you do any of that? How did you feel about it at that time?
1: It's a very, very conflicting, mm. very, very thick of conflicting. Um, obviously, I was in emergency medicine, which is obviously at the forefront, um, of where all of that work was going on, um, and it was very difficult. I mean, so I had, I had by that point, I had already, uh, resigned my job. It was a couple of years uh, that I had already resigned by, um. So I was doing shifts just in urgent care centres at the time when it had literally just started. um, And my skill set had already lost practice. So I wasn't skilled enough to be able to deal with the major resuscitation situations that I was able to do quite proficiently before. Um, So actually, from a a psychological point of view, I was just like, well, I'm not skilled enough to do that anymore, so therefore it is isn't—it is no longer my responsibility. Actually, I'd be hindering if I was in that situation. And then on the second point, I was obviously incredibly nervous personally because I know that that's where the people were getting the sickest. Like, not only the poor patients getting the sickest, but also even medical staff were getting sickest because we, the medical staff didn't have the right but no one had the knowledge of what it was, how to protect against it, you know, all of this. Um, and it was a very, it was a very scary, scary time. But I also felt relieved that because that was another thing, obviously when you're in medicine, the the magnitude of the seriousness of what you're doing is, um, can weigh very, very heavy on you. And, and to me, I was just like, I, I did not want that responsibility anymore. It was something I w- I had done. I had done very well. I had done some amazing things for amazing people and amazing patients um, and been there in their most vulnerable and their most horrendous. And I had supported them through that. But I felt like I had done that, if that made sense. I felt like I was ready. And I am, even though it's really difficult, and I've had very awkward conversations with other people who said, well, you should go back. You have to go back. And I'm just like, well you can go to university, you can study medicine, and you can do it if you really wanted to. I did that. And I decided after X amount of years of doing it, I was done. Um, and that's why I said, you know, it's without, I know it's a really difficult, it's difficult in people's minds to kind of say that. And some people don't still don't understand it, which is absolutely fine. But um, it, it was for me, it was the right decision to be Um, to be effective and to be happy in in my place of work. And that was was my decision. And
0: I think you're entitled to own that. And, you know, in life, we all make decisions and they are challenging. They're very challenging decisions. And sometimes you do things out of a sense of duty and a sense of obligation, but you've already identified that before you made the decision to leave medicine, it was making you sad. And at eight, ten years into your career, if your career is making you sad, then you're looking down the barrel of something that's not going to serve you well for the rest of your life. And, you know, certainly no judgment from me. I think it was very brave. Um, I know when I changed career, I felt like I'd been pushed off the edge of a cliff without a parachute. Um, So I understand that sense of um, free falling and fear and reestablishing yourself really. Um, So, you know, well done, you really for for making a career choice, and no judgment whatsoever. Covid happened; it didn't happen because you left medicine. So, of course
1: not. No. You know? <laughs> and it's 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 one of those things where um, I I mean, even to this day, I still have conversations with doctors who are struggling with their love for medicine because obviously, when you go into medicine at a very very young age, you the, what what it's like at the end of it, but it's like when you're working in hospitals or doing the job. It's 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 worlds apart. It's probably the same for I would say 90% of work, really. If you when you suddenly become an architect, actually the architecture is different and it's the same with interior design. When you go to the design school, actually being an interior designer and running your own business is completely different. So actually, you know, you can only tell when you're in the space doing the actual work what it's like and what that makes you feel like. And I think that's um and I think it it's you know, I, as I said I have conversations with doctors nowadays about their struggle and their kind of like, they're falling out of love with the profession and kind of like, you know, the decisions mm. that they want to take. And I basically, it all comes down to, um, yes, of course, there's morals and there's th- what things people should do and what people shouldn't do. But, you know, most of the doctors have already done more than anyone else has ever done in yeah. their life. So actually what they need to decide on is what is going to fulfill yeah. them for the rest of their life. Because, you know, we I've had colleagues of mine, I've had friends of mine who have continued on the path and are miserable and have done things which are horrendous. And you know, it's that that's not a way to live. That's not a way to, to, to live your life. So you should definitely focus on se- seeking the joy, seeking, you know, and being happy with what you're doing. And I'm not saying that there aren't days where in interior design <laughs> it's not stressful. <laughs> I mean well, I on, would say yeah. <laughs> oh, Merle- yeah, exactly. Um but it's um it's 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 a different it's a different level. It's something where I'm more in control of it and there's um and, and there there are things which um which mm. balance out for me at this point. But again, I also stress that we are not trees, we can move True. around. If someone decides to stop their design business because it's mm-hmm. too stressful, that's also yeah. fine as well. Like there's no such thing as um You know, one of your previous podcasts, uh, people actually said something about how failure sometimes seen as a dirty word, Mm. but actually is just an opportunity. And I found that so useful and not like so kind of well uh, relatable because I was just like, I completely agree. Mm. So so many people think that, well, you know, admitting that you're you're moving on from something is is kind of like a a dirty Mm. word or kind of like it's like it's it's a sad thing that you've left whatever profession or whatever you've done before, but actually. It's about moving on, learning from it, moving on to better and, and other things. And that's absolutely fine. And I
0: think when that happens, and the guest you're talking about is Laurie, Laurie Bolon from um, Porter. Yeah. Uh, I think when that happens, um, you approach that new opportunity through a different lens because you're shaped by your experiences and the experience that you've defined as a failure or whatever that might be um makes you who you are today and you know i have this conversation um quite often that you know we're all we're products of the journey aren't we of what we've seen in life and i know it's shaped me um you know i spent 20 years as a police officer that's definitely shaped me um and i sometimes apologize for that because of the fact that i'm a little bit direct and i'm a bit black and white about things um i lack, I lack the softer skills at times, and I know that about myself, but at least I know why and I use the stronger side my strategics and my my um my ability to analyse risk I use that as you know my strengths, so you you have to adapt and and take the best of what you have um, and move forward with it so you you came into the industry and you spoke about when you went into medicine, it wasn't quite what you thought it was when you were young. Talk to me about interior design. Is it what you thought? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, my God. We can talk about this for ages. Um, I think, so interior design is, to a certain degree, yes, it is what I thought it was going to be, but there's a, it's, it's so much bigger and more complicated than most people think it is, even, I would say, Um, even some some of our clients still don't Mm realise how complicated this is and only once they embark on a project with us do they realise holy moly this is really complicated I mean I have have clients who are doctors who know I was a doctor who we have a conversation of so (laughs) which is more complicated (laughs) interior design or medicine and or emergency medicine particularly and I'm just like well at Least in emergency medicine, there's a protocol <laughs> that's you know it's tried and tested and uh, peer reviewed, whereas in the med- interior design, it is a bit of a free fall for you know to certain degrees, and it is um, it is very different. So, obviously, I think there's a lot of interior design which is very glamorized mm. in the media, and um, obviously, because we have amazing mm. output, we have beautiful, beautiful homes, and beautiful rooms and spaces that we um, design. Um, but what that doesn't show is the huge amount of legwork mm-hmm. that goes on behind the scenes um the negotiations the communication the tactics the and i say tactics not in a like not in a slide way but mm-hmm. more just like in a you have to try and bring people on board to your vision and work towards mm-hmm. it um and, and negotiate around that so it's it's so um there's so much that goes into a project um, literally blood, sweat and tears and um, it's you know and we do it for the benefit of Mm. our clients like it's you know there is a small bit of it which is our ego i.e we want it to look good for ourselves as well because we're obviously very proud of our work but at the end of the day it's the benefit of Mm. the client because they get to go home to that space day and night and be able to enjoy it and you know um, it's that is that is probably you know the most the most important thing and I think that's as i said in the media it's it's very glamorized and you know i had such a cringe moment the other day where i saw um like a, a like a video on social media about um interior influencers and they were just stroking a cushion yeah. and pushing a curtain away and i'm just like honestly you have no oh, yeah. idea like i mean yes it's beautiful to stroke a beautiful cushion but the at the by the point that we're stroking beautiful cushions we've already had 54 <laughs> breakdowns over tile issue tap hardware not being right like so many i can give you a, a a list as long as my arm of the deficiencies that we've had to deal with to get to that point and I feel like, you know, there's there's a bit of a, a disconnect between what real interior designers do and how it's portrayed mm, in the media. Yeah,
0: and I would agree. Um, TV programs like HG, well, TV channels like HGTV, I, I love because I, I go to the States a lot and I can completely indulge in that because we don't have it here. Um, but I know that it's all about, you know, what can be done in 25 minutes. Um, and it isn't real. And I use the analogy of... A a cushion has five moving parts that's five orders that's lots of expert and it's a cushion and then you you multiply that by what's in a room and then by what's in a house and before you know it this is an enormous task just for for so many elements to be bespoke um but while we're on media (laughs) You know where this oh, is going, God. don't Here you? There <laughs> we go. I know where this is going.
1: Lay it on me. Lay it on me. So, come on, come Peter on. So,
0: first came to my <laughs> attention as one of the contestants on Design Masters. Talk me yeah. through it.
1: <laughs> oh well, as I said, we can hope we can probably do a, a whole other like three hour thing about this. But so, Interior Design Masters. Um, the I was on series season two, um, and that happened. During um, COVID, actually, so filming happened during COVID, um, and even casting happened. Just kind of, so the 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 initial kind of like inception, I would say, would be when they kind of ask do a casting call and they ask for people to submit applications, and that was in the beginning phases of my studio. So I thought it would be a really good way of getting my name out there. It's kind of like a PR mm. situation. Um, and, and also challenging myself, because I always knew that my, my main focus was going to be um, residential, um, but because the principal focus of that show was to do commercial work, so I thought, well, it could be a really interesting opportunity for me to challenge myself a little bit to do some more commercial work, which is not where my brain normally flexes to. Um, here, I was thinking it was more of an educational opportunity, kind of that like you get to have actual conversations with um, other designers, and... Um, and and the likes of uh, but it was a very different experience and obviously everyone has their own experience but I can only speak to my truth and why my, my experience there um but yeah it was um, literally I would say from from day dot really from the first um project or from the first episode or or whatever you had to do it's um it's very very evident that Um, this isn't real interior design it's kind of you know they give you a brief which is very very loose which is kind of there's not you can't really have a conversation with anyone about it it's just a written down done by a producer really Um, and then you are put into a show the the first episode was show homes in our example Um, and you're paired up with someone and somehow they throw into the mix that actually your briefs have to be congruous and and That obviously was never explained before, and you never had the opportunity to have a congruous conversation with the person you've been matched to. Um, And and obviously on-site, lots of things happen, which some are obviously just normal. Things happen and they go wrong, and that's completely normal. But also a lot of things are made to go right. wrong and it just feels like you're basically a puppet that's being played and it's very frustrating and i didn't take to that very well <laughs> and um and because of that um, i was very much oh he's a difficult one oh. he's he's difficult um and that's fine i don't mind that because i know that i was you know very honest and very truthful about my approach and, and how I do interiors mm. and um and anyway and I was there up until episode three or whatever and then I, and then I was gone um which was fine because I was I had enough at that <laughs> completely um but yeah so it's um it was a very it was you know it's it's a show that is for entertainment yes. sake it is hosted by a comedian yes. after all um and. And and by by designers or people who work in the industry who um, or who are known in the industry, but whose principal focus for being on the show is just for media yeah. and PR. So, you know, if you know Kit Kemp wins on the show, and with all due respect to Kit Kemp, she isn't there to mentor us, particularly. She's there as a PR situation and um, and all the other designers, and that's absolutely fine. that's what it is it isn't an educational course it's not a course it's not you know it's not like interior design masters i.e a master's course in interior design that's not what it is at all there's no education there's no true feedback there's no true um dialogue Mm -hmm. about design um it is a show created for entertainment purposes exclusively um and it has no real bearing on the Mm. real world of interior design. And I've had many designers come up to me and say, but how can you do that? How can this be the case? I'm just like, because it's not real. It's literally a stage set. Like they come in after we've done and they redo everything, you know, at a cost of £20,000, but we're only given one. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's not real. Like people need to realise it's not real. It's pantomime, I would say.
0: So how did the experience of being thrown into the media spotlight at the very beginning of your career, really? How do you think that that has um, helped or not helped, if that's the case, your experience?
1: It's a really good question. I think uh, I'm quite comfortable on camera and I'm quite comfortable having conversations in public and that that doesn't really... um, I don't feel uncomfortable in that situation. So from that point of view, I wasn't, I wasn't really, I didn't really mind. Um, I very quickly realised that my intention was different to a lot of other people's intention for being on the show. There's a lot of people that go on these kinds of shows, not necessarily only interior design masters, but lots of other shows for the intention to become famous, to mm. become a, a celebrity of some sorts. Um and that was never my intention. I just don't really care about mm. that at all. My intention was always interiors, as I said, my lifelong <laughs> <last> obsession <laughs> um with, with the home. Um so for me, as I said, it was principally a uh, that kind of opportunity. Um it didn't, I wouldn't say specifically it has changed how I am as a person it's only I guess the only thing it's done is made it very very clear that that is not the kind of design I do like that is I do not work on a you know on a one-week turnaround (laughs) I do not work with a £1,000 budget it's it's just it's just yeah well you know it's just you know it's Mm -hmm. um and it's just I just I and it's made me very kind of like strong in that I know what I want to deliver to my clients and I can express this to my clients very clearly and hopefully they also yeah. want that if they don't want that and they do want the one week turnaround then they can <laughs> find whoever does <laughs> yeah. want to do that I mean there will be people that do do it which is you know which is which uh, well, yeah
0: well yeah you
1: know it's, it's it's just one of those things they if they can choose to do what they want to do but it's it's not what yeah. I want to do and it's not the offering that I want to give my clients um so yeah it's a very different it's... world and yeah
0: so when you've established yourself early in your career and you're finding your feet, what were the biggest challenges of running an interior design business for you?
1: For me, I guess the, as I said, because I didn't have experience um, of working with another studio or with um, kind of working with others in that that field. My main um, concern was learning on mm-hmm. my feet running literally running a project and and learning the things because as you know it's all about what you yes. don't know and actually because what you know yeah. is fine and you having great taste and you having you making great selections is is fine that's not that's not where the issues are going to be the issues are going to be in all the things that you don't mm-hmm. know i.e what other people are going to do on site, what clients are going to hold you responsible for, um, what are the things that you need to look out for and what things you need to mitigate for and what, do you, you know, all of these things. So learning that as I went along was, you know, I would say every project was a, a massive like, mm. oh my God, there's a whole list of things which I should have mm. done better or should do better next um, on the next project to make sure that the client experience is better, to make sure that, the outcome was better for the clients to make sure that you know this situation doesn't happen again or that situation doesn't happen again and that is the you know that is what's really really tricky whereas if i had i guess observed someone else then it would have been clear (laughs) why those situations um they would have already you know they've learned that of someone else so it's kind of like you you learn by osmosis because i didn't have that i kind of had to do the mistakes learn the hard way as it were um which is uh which is Mm. difficult and it's it's hard and you know it can be very disheartening there are many times where i was just like oh this is really really like really frustratingly Mm. difficult why is it so difficult and um and it's you know it's important to then lean on other people in the industry but it can be incredibly lonely when you're working particularly as a solo so it's very very
0: hard yeah and that's kind of the point of why we're here isn't it on this podcast having this conversation to try and break down some of those barriers and that that sense of finding your mistakes as you make them and that and that loneliness um because it does exist and I know that you've come from a an environment where it's all about teamwork and it's relying on your colleagues that's exactly the same kind of environment that I came from where everybody has to have your back and then suddenly you're you're on your own and you don't have anybody having your back, and you actually don't even have anybody to pick up the phone and ask. Um, how have you? How have you observed the isolation that exists in some parts of the industry?
1: It's really, really difficult because I think um, I was a completely, I hundred percent agree with you. By the way, on this issue, I think it's so important to have community uh. and to have that. As you said, someone that you can just yeah. call and just be like, this is the situation I'm yeah. facing, et cetera, et cetera. Like, because, you know, even if you have employees or even if you have um, someone else that you can trust, that you can speak to who maybe your partner or someone, they're not within the yeah. industry. So they're, they're, they're not experienced in the same way. Um, so I think I'm quite lucky that in the Northwest um where I'm based there's a um, a really nice social group like we're, there's a group of interior designers who we kind of all work kind of um across the northwest we're all kind of very friendly mm. with each other but we're not um we're not necessarily in direct competition with each other although I'm sure there are um clients who see us at yes. the same time which is absolutely fine um because I believe there's space for everyone mm. in the industry um but um there is there is a bit of a, a bit of a, uh, a friendliness so therefore we have a whatsapp group where we um kind of randomly send messages and kind of like even if it's just a, a simple meme you know just yeah. like a little joke about you know whatever just a bit of and it just means that those lines of communication are open and therefore if someone does want to speak about something obviously it's still difficult when if something happens it's always difficult to talk about it openly in a group situation or uh because it's always a bit of a it's like it can be construed as slightly embarrassing maybe and um, that's like oh this problem has happened to me and I feel embarrassed that it's mm. happened to me um but that's how we yeah. all learn and I've learned from other people sharing their stories and me being like oh my yeah. god that's like a major learning yeah. point for me as well even though I've not had mm. that situation happen to me but it's really really helpful and really really useful and was it's Made, whilst it may have been difficult in and, and in your head, embarrassing for you to share. It's been incredibly valuable yeah. to share that. So you know, so I always thank people for sharing things. But it is it is tricky. And uh, as I said, I, I do feel very very lucky. There was a small social group which I got involved with very very early on, which has been disbanded from an organisational thing. But at least there's still this WhatsApp group going on, which. Um, I see lean into yeah. heavily, which is really nice. No, that nice. is, that's
0: lovely. And it's rare actually. Um, but it is um yes. it is lovely that you've got yes. that. I think it's the Northern in you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I mean definitely from my other design colleagues who are based down south in terms of in London, the counties and um and in the Midlands, they don't really have that and particular when you're a solopreneur it can be or you're solo in your studio it can be incredibly isolating to not mm. have anyone to have those yeah. conversations with um and or even refer i mean i've referred work to some other colleagues now because i'm just like you know i don't have the capacity for this project and i yeah. refer to you does anyone have the, the 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 space for this can someone else take it and um and it, it just helps
0: yeah, you know, it, it just helps
1: having that, and I think the more open people are, the better it yeah. is because the, there's nothing that's there's nothing that's against other people. I mean, there's, there there should be a complete and true openness about it, but I think you know, you're as you've rightly said, there is a lot of um, guardedness. Yeah. I think about about interiors, which is just. Um, which is I don't, I don't I don't know where it comes from I don't know whether it's just a historical, historical thing and
0: old school um, that's all and
1: it just it just but it just mm. it filters all the way through yeah. and it's still there now even in new yeah. designers coming through that they learn they have to somehow be secretive yeah. and and, um, and hidden. Or
0: it, whatever. it can at times feel like a you know um, a journey of survival, can't it? You know, because um, you know you're going through these challenges, and it is quite challenging to find out how to handle some of them um because there isn't like you say uh, a standard operating procedure that we can refer to that tells us what we should do in this particular scenario which i would very much like at times as well oh god yeah (laughs) so what do you think has been the biggest challenge that you've faced since running your own business
1: i would say um setting up kind of the the framework of kind of like how to run a project kind of like setting that up and kind of like having that kind of um tested and, and and flowing that's obviously that was quite difficult and i think kind of on a day-to-day basis is is bringing people up to my standards and getting people up to what i'm expecting people to execute so and have as a, as I kind of when i when i have a vision when i have a, a vision for a mm. space there are those contractors who are very excited by that vision and who come on board wholeheartedly and then there's other contractors who push back a Uh lot and also disappoint Uh and that is where i find very very difficult Uh because when i because i live and breathe my projects literally i'm Uh about them until they are completed um and the fact that people don't have the same level of enthusiasm yeah. for my project is baffling to me yeah. <laughs> I don't know why um but it's um it's really it's it, it you know when people disappoint on when contractors or, or suppliers disappoint and um, I find it very very difficult uh, because I'm I hate being conversational I really it's not my strong point and um, and i have, I find it really awkward having difficult conversations despite me also being quite direct mm. at times but I find that when someone's disappointed me or disappointed Do you use what the I expected word. of them <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <disappointed> yeah <laughs> but dis- disappointed yeah and but 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 despite that i i still find that despite so i always i always treat people as though they are reasonable human beings and they will you know come to the right point eventually that's what i that's my always that's my standing point which may be incredibly naive of me and i think it can be sometimes um but I feel like if at least I give people that starting point, like that's where you're going to start. But then obviously if you fall short of that, then you're just going to disappoint me. Um, and then anyone that steps above it, they're amazing. They're great. And there are people that step above that. And there are people that go above and beyond to deliver a great project or deliver a great service. But then there are also people which, which, which disappoint, yeah. which I still find very, very difficult. When it
0: comes to subcontractors, I think this is some. It's a particular part of the industry that I, I know in the past I have felt let down um, by subcontractors Um, and I have changed my kind of procedures really in in the way in which we would introduce a subcontractor to a client to make sure that they kind of pass a particular benchmark. Are there any systems or processes you've put in place that helps reduce that risk from you you know when the client's disappointed with the contractor's work because it happens is there anything you've done that you've learned from?
1: so we 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 basically we go through a kind of like a, when, when a contractor is introduced to a project or or suggested to to a project so i kind of go through a bit of a a, a referral kind of like questioning so i always ask who have they worked with who and 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 you know and then speak to mm-hmm. those people to make sure that, that 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 is validated and kind of like say kind of like you know what's know what was your experience like I also asked them directly like what is your resolution for um for a difficult deficiency issue like so tell me an example and try and kind of like bring them on board by asking them that um just to kind of see what their response is because there are people who and obviously there is always a person that can say something and Mm. do something else Mm. of course but I think by having that conversation very very early on in the, in the introduction, it sets kind of like a a tone that we know things happen, but we want to know how yeah. things are going to be remedied. Um, but no, and I heard I know that I heard on some of the other podcasts that you mentioned you do a credit check on some of the subcontractors. Is that correct? Yeah,
0: absolutely, and suppliers, both of them. Yeah and i'm grateful that we do because we would have been caught out to a significant value earlier this year had we not done that um it's we just use experian it's not expensive and we run a credit check and if if it has and obviously you can look at company's house and see what people's accounts last look like but that's Correct. you yes. know we're talking 18 months out of date when you check that but if yes. we so we judge three things what does company's house look like Yes. What does experience?
1: How many how how many directorships exactly. have they had in the last What's year? What's <laughs> their performance
0: been on a consistent kind of basis? What yes. does experience tell us about this company? And like you say, you know, have they reestablished themselves under a new name, or is there something else that's a bit tricky? And by and large, most suppliers that we work with, we've probably worked with before, but not always. Yes, um, and so you know the 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 industry type that's gone on us the most in the last twelve months has been um windows and doors um really large architectural windows and door companies which unfortunately have um have have failed and their significant costs for clients Yeah, Massive, huge yes. huge yes and so i I just feel that if we're proposing a subcontractor options to a client that all we mm-hmm. can do is do a little bit of due diligence and then it's over to the client to do their own due diligence as well because we always make sure that our clients mm-hmm. enter into a contract independently with the subcontract. So it doesn't get it doesn't come right. through our funnel.
1: It's not through yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. But but even then, I mean obviously the clients may still hold you responsible for that introduction, yeah. which is very awkward yeah. and very discomfort dis- well, you know uncomfortable. We
0: issue our clients with a letter that i've written a standard letter saying hey here's this company they might even have a quote we really recommend that you do your own due diligence we're not recommending them we're just saying that this is a person that could supply this particular thing yes. and we give them ways in which yes. they could undertake that due diligence because there is only so far you can take it you can't predict the future yes. all you can do is no. do your best to Try and look out for their best interests. Really,
1: it's so difficult. It's very difficult, yeah, because you can't you can't control if someone's having mm. a bad day at their work, obviously, and also, you know, as you said, if someone if someone's a subcontractor brought in by the general contractor, yeah. as an example, how am I? How you know? It's it's no. it's it's, no it's idea. so removed yeah. from me. All I can do is give yeah. direction and explain clearly what our expectation is and what the deliverables yeah. are, and if they don't deliver yeah. it, then other than me saying, you haven't delivered it, Mm. and therefore this is a contractual issue now. Yeah, It's so difficult. It's so, so tricky.
0: One of the things that we introduced a few years ago is that if we were going to reach out to a subcontractor on behalf of a client just to say, there's this project, would you like to tender or quote for it? Before we go any further, we issue them with a kind of standards document explaining that if you do work kind of on one of our projects for this client these are the things that we're going to be expecting. And it is really just about owning your own problems, snagging your own work, quality, respect of our clients' homes, no photographs, you know, no swearing, don't leave your dirty food containers on site, just basics really. But I think it has to start at the right level. You know, you set the tone before you even get them to put a price together. And if they're happy with that, and to be honest, yes, Most people that we work with now, um, they quite like it because they know that we're serious and that we've got pride in our work as well. So it's a good thing. It's worth doing.
1: Yes, that's really, yeah. So, I mean, we've done similar things where we, kind of when we do our... our, um, kind of like our contractor meetings we basically would kind of like just highlight just reiterate again so we, the, the this is who the, this is the client that you the, the invoices are all d- directed to the mm. client this is their address this is their mailing address we are here as consultants yeah. kind of like making sure that the, that the design um that comes through from everyone is kind of like links yeah. up with each other um, and also we ask you to provide your own shop drawings that we yeah. will approve. So um, our concept drawings are purely kind of like for discussion purposes, only they're not for construction and therefore you guys to provide us with your mm. drawings that are required for, for as yeah. an example, m um, and and whatever. Yeah. So it's um, like custom joinery, etc. So it's, it's, um, so we do do that, but it is, uh, and, and also we ask for copies of um, insurance yeah. purposes. So we have copies of insurance documentation for that, which just shows people that you know, at least you have the information yeah. of their company and where they're registered and where and where their insurance is, yeah. is held, which is um where 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 we would go then if 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 there was an issue that's persistent, obviously. But you always you always want to avoid that. You I mean you you just want people to own their work and be and stand up against it and be like yes this is this is yeah this is my best work and i've done it for you and I'm like okay well that isn't good enough <laughs> <laughs> um and therefore if, if if that isn't good enough and that isn't what we asked for then you need to do something about it because otherwise you know it's the client who's out of pocket unfortunately which is really frustrating for everyone involved plus also the project is held up until this is resolved which is um sometimes it's just very very difficult and yeah. very awkward and it's um frustrating mm. as hell as i would yeah, say yeah
0: and i think you're right you have to be your client's advocate um that's what i think professionally they're expecting of us whilst
1: not being a yeah. solicitor or having legal yeah. basis to be able to talk about claims and counterclaims and yeah. contractual um, obligations because obviously whilst you are there as a designer you are also then explaining to someone that actually you're in contract directly with them so therefore yeah you just the their agent that's all And you're just like, oh my god! I'm having these conversations, and I'm just wanted to be an (laughs) interior designer, and I wanted to to make your your home beautiful. And yes, we're on our way there, but this has happened in the meantime. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So therefore, it's not just about stroking a cushion and drawing a cursor. Unless it's It's it's, (laughs) it's definitely not. not It's to invest
0: in a significant amount of money, and it can't be taken lightly. You know, Um, completely. No, I I think you're right, but I think you're right because what what you're saying really is the risk and responsibility that we carry is greater than I think anybody appreciates. You know, I, I will often laugh and joke and go, well, you, you just think we're the cushion fluffers. Um, Cause I'm the furthest thing from a cushion fluffer, but I think that's the perception from some people.
1: Yeah, they don't, they don't yeah. understand that, that, you know, the level, I mean, the people that don't understand it, I have either clearly never done the level of work that yeah. we do, um, or that go that goes into the work that we yeah. do. um. so therefore, that's why they yeah. don't understand it, which yeah. is fine, because it's, you would only know really, and most people only do one major renovation yeah. in their life. So, they do it once and then yeah. that's it because they realize what the absolute <laughs> yeah what a lot of work it is. so they're just like we're not doing nothing
0: <laughs> do it once but do it well right
1: <laughs> yes that's the hope yeah.
0: so are there any other big learning points that you took you know that you think you know you need to share
1: for me um because i'm i'm so personal with kind of like my process and with my clients it's um, the the quality assurance kind of like I, I really as much as possible try to do a turnkey mm-hmm. presentation and a turnkey kind of like um, reveal for the clients I know sometimes that can be really really difficult with clients very eager to move back into their homes after a major renovation because of the costs of rent being so extortionate as they are and they've already incurred such major costs, all of these things. Um, it can be really tricky to do that. But I think um giving as much of a turnkey kind of like experience to the client to move back in to be like, this mm. is our home done now. It's clean. It's beautiful. Whilst it may not have all the bells and whistles that we had discussed at the very beginning. So there may be, you know, round two coming for cushions and extra art or accessories. At least they're in a beautiful space that is gorgeous, as mm. we had discussed, you know, bar a vase and a bowl and, you know, and some art. Um, so as much as possible doing that, and also quality and control on my side as much as possible. So we have everything come into a receiving warehouse, which um, I, do, I basically, I, I, I nearly refuse projects if they say they won't take out of a receiving warehouse, because it is nearly impossible for me to do any quality control on a construction yeah. site, um, on product which is arriving. So it's light fittings, um, it's any piece of furniture, wall coverings, um so having somewhere yeah. separate which is safe.
0: Yeah.
1: Um that I can check everything mm. in and rewrap it and have it safe until time that is needed. I know it's expensive mm. and I know it's it's an extra cost, but it, it's we've had so many issues with things just arriving on site and then the client having to face it and be upset with it and then it just reduces their 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 trust in us to be able to deliver that whereas it has again nothing to do with us we're not the ones that put that faulty product in that box and shipped it but all we can do is check it and try and mitigate it and control that away from the client so they don't have to deal with that
0: i would agree with that and we're fortunate that we can receive some stock here at our studio so that helps a little bit we don't have to trapes across to anywhere else um, but I would also agree that we've had a situation whereby a client wanted to receive um, items because they had lots of storage facilities and we was reluctant and we went through the process of it as I've explained that you know they had to be opened and checked when you receive it it has to be because we can't deal with problems three six months later no, and definitely lo and not. behold, <laughs> be six months later, well, the client didn't open yeah, something yeah. and then they open it and go, that's yeah. not the colour I ordered. And we were like, well, it was made bespoke yeah, yeah. for you in Italy and you've had it six months, so it's going to be really hard. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So
0: it, it is hard totally. to manage that when your client is trying to save a little bit of money and that's not unreasonable. But they also have to take that little bit of responsibility as well.
1: Of course, completely. And it's a responsibility that either... I mean, you know, they're either going to be paying for for you to do it or they're gonna take that on. And if they want to take that on, then that's that's on them, I guess, which is, you know, it's I understand it's it's an it's an additional cost completely. Don't get me wrong. It is it's already a very expensive process to go through, then to add on this additional rentals of the unit that's just literally having stocks sit in it, basically, because nothing's happening by it's there then we know we have it because the, the you know as well as um, other interior designers will know you specify something and unless you purchase it at that moment, it may go completely out of stock and you have no idea when it's coming back into stock. Or if it's a custom item, you need to order it with enough lead time to allow for them to process and to do it and for you to receive it and check it properly. Um, so it's it's something which it's, it may seem frivolous to have this space which is just holding things but it's really mm. valuable obviously if you have space in your studio which is fantastic and um, then that's obviously a great great base for that to sit um but if not then it needs to go mm. somewhere and the construction site is definitely yeah, not safe definitely. space for you know expensive pieces mm. of furniture lighting to be mm. held unless it's totally and yeah, 100 secure yeah
0: completely so um let's think about the um the big three shall we um Oh, so, this is going to be an interesting one. I can't wait to hear what you say. All right. What would you have told your younger self?
1: Oh, my God. Um,
0: and you knew it was coming, and so you must have an answer.
1: It's, I've, so, I've heard you ask every single person on the podcast. I knew it was coming. And despite... And, yeah, so I think, in all honesty, I think... I would have and this probably relates to my journey my career journey principally I would probably just tell myself stop listening to what other people's Mm. expectations of you are listen to yourself listen to your heart listen to your inside what is that saying and try and Um. follow that now, without necessarily having your head in the sky, because it's obviously quite difficult when you're younger where your head is pr- principally either in the sky or, or <laughs> elsewhere, um, it's it's we, so many people are constantly preoccupied by other people's perception yeah. of them. And I think we could just do a lot more by not caring as much about what other people yeah. think and really listen to ourselves and listen to what we want to achieve in our life, in our goals, in our career, and even with work now, I mean, the, you you can see so many designers comparing themselves and to mm. other designers and saying, "Well, I'm not as successful as ABC, so therefore I am not as worthy of whatever." And I'm just like, "No, no, no, mm. stop! Like, ignore ABC. ABC has their mm. own journey. What is? What do you want? What do, you, do you, you know? Do you want to be a big business? Do you want to be a small business? Do you want to even be mm. a business? Do you want to become an astronaut? Like, do do what you want yeah. to do." And stop paying attention to other people and what they're saying. Because at the end of the day, you... We're, we're so kind of... We think that everyone... We all think we're the main character of our of our own movie, right? Are we not? But actually... <laughs> well, we are. But pe- other people aren't as... Impo- aren't They're also the main character yeah, yeah. of their own movies. They don't, they don't care about <laughs> you as the main character. They're seeing themselves as the main character. Yeah. So actually, in the end of the day, people are too preoccupied by other people's opinion of them. And I wish, same to me that I was less preoccupied by the whole kind of like, oh, well, you became a doctor now. You must continue to become a doctor. You must continue in this path, regardless of how miserable it makes you. And I wish I was just like, you know what? Yeah. No. like and, I, and even before that, I like, wish I was just like, well, yeah, my father's an architect, but I can do my yeah. own thing within that same industry and be completely separate i mean he does very technical water consultancy <laughs> so it's very very far <laughs> removed from what i do so it's i don't know why but i was just like it has to be it can't come to the same <laughs> so it's it's you know I, I think i think people just need to and i wish i could have told myself like don't take it too seriously and just listen to what you're what your inside yeah. is saying and and follow mm. that i like
0: that and you know i think social media you know i have a love-hate relationship with social media it's, <sighs> it, it, oh, honestly <laughs> we can't live without it because it's our shop window but it's all bs isn't it all of it
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i would say it is a shop yeah. window but it's also not a yeah. shop window because it shows because even i mean we're, we're equally bad with the representation of our industry if all we show is beautifully finished rooms. And it's impossible, I mean, particularly for me, it's impossible. I only do a handful of projects per year. So it's impossible for me to have constantly fresh, new, gorgeously photographed content. It's impossible. Like I have to drip feed my (laughs) Instagram, my my one photo (laughs) shoot per annum throughout the whole year and then throw back to my previous projects, of course, because it's impossible to have that massive volume of work that is all instagram worthy or photo worthy um but I, you know i do show a lot of the behind the scenes mm. in terms of incredibly dusty building sites which is where i basically have 20 percent of you know my life at least um and and that is what being an interior designer is i mean i wish i could show you my my you know i could show instagram my desk and how messy that is uh, i could wish i could show them like the number of spreadsheets and tabs i have open because that's the reality of it you know the number of emails i have you know coming into my inbox and who I need to respond, and the awkward conversation. I mean, if, if can you imagine if our awkward conversations mm. and, like, our difficult conversations were on Instagram Live? <laughs> things would be a lot you know, more I different. Think, I, I think would get re- a lot
0: of clicks, I've got to be honest.
1: <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It's... it's it, That is the reality of the, of the day-to-day that an interior designer has to do. It's, you know, and, and yes, you can put it in a really cool reel and put some really fun music behind it and make it seem really glamorous as though you're, you know, a skinny white woman walking around a... A beautiful twenty million pound home, but in reality, it is you're walking around a dusty construction site, you're talking to people to to try and get them on board to deliver what you want them to do and um whilst it might may may or may not be what they want to do um and also you're dealing with loads of deficiencies, yeah. constantly from people willingly or unwillingly you know messing
0: yeah about. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, yeah, you made me laugh there that's funny. Uh, it's true it's absolutely true you know my social media feed is the same it's all the pretty stuff um and yeah it's it's hard work it's a full-time job feeding it yeah oh my god
1: it is it really is which is why i've I've, i have taken a step back from it because it was it was getting too much. And I, I guess, I mean, I don't have a, a ginormous following. I obviously went up with the show, but that's it's pretty much plateaued and has kind of died a bit of a death, which is fine. Um, because I never really had a great amount of traction via social media. um, And I found that the people that found me exclusively through social media weren't necessarily always always the right fit for my projects and the kind of scale of of projects i want to take on and the budget that i want to take on because um my focus is a very specific cohort of the population and whilst they are on social media they're not necessarily always looking for an interior designer via social media and they would most likely go via referral or via the architect or via um Another, you know, the they've, they've you on many platforms of social media is one of them. So it needs to be alive, but doesn't necessarily meet, need to be your only focus, I would say. So And um, I think social media, as I said, it, it does perpetuate this, this, this glamorized view of interior design, which, you know, to a client may be fine. But in reality, when you are stood in a construction site with your client and it's dusty and it's not that glamorous, yeah you know beautiful shot with the beautiful white flowy curtains you know that's the reality that's the situation that you're going to be in and that's the the situation that you need to manage with your clients so therefore you know they need to know that it is it takes you know it takes a lot of broken eggs to make it it that that big omelet
0: (laughs) so um i'm going to skip the next question because you've covered it which have i uh, sorry (laughs) no it which is your greatest lesson i think you've kind of covered that but really, what's next for you?
1: So I'm ve- so I'm a solo. I'm a solo in a in a one man band. I have a couple of freelancers that help me with my with my um, with some technical drawings that I require when I can't do because I do principally focus on full homes. I want that to be my focus moving forward. I feel like I have more to give to those kind of projects um, rather than the single yeah. room, individual yeah, yeah. room projects and i to be honest i find individual room projects just as hard
0: yeah as stressful yeah, just as hard. <laughs> yeah um
1: but without necessarily as 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 fun uh a reveal yeah, at yeah. the end or even 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 the journey of designing a single room sometimes can feel a little bit a silo within a whole yeah. house so i prefer to do a full home if, if yeah. possible so i think that's my focus moving forward focusing more on, on full home renovations and and um uh and that level yeah. of work really um ideally obviously we all want to have i, I don't want to use the term better clients and we all want to have clients who we are able to express mm. our creativity yeah. with better that is what I yeah. mean to say that's what I mean to say so I'm really I feel like I'm really really lucky that I ha- I've had some amazing clients recently who have really trusted my vision and have kind of given me the reins of their projects and have been able to execute the project to 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 within an inch of my vision which has been fantastic so I really liked having that opportunity and I wish to continue having that opportunity um as opposed to having clients necessarily dictate to me what their vision is without it necessarily being 100% of a fit with yeah.
0: me. Yeah, no, I think that's important because having a vision that you can align with, it actually means that you're meeting their expectations and that you're going to delight them. Whereas sometimes if, if you're not that type of designer and you don't understand that particular look and aesthetic, you'll spend you'll spend more time on it hours and hours and hours more time and you will probably underwhelm them so it's it's a good strategy
1: it needs to be the right Mm. fit so it's about making sure keeping on focusing on clients who have the right fit energy and um and stylistically and also just focusing on full Hmm. homes which is which is my my principal um focus i would i mean there are there are big pipeline dreams where i would like to have a bigger team and more people working with me because I, as I, as we mentioned kind of like the isolation of me working yeah. on my own is a little bit like everything's inside my head i think it was so crazy um so it'd be nice to kind of voice that out to other people That at this moment for the next kind of like year or so then, then that that's going to be my focus in the five year it would be nice to have um that growth in yeah. terms of um growing the team slightly yeah. and and um, and setting setting ourselves up in that in that regard, and I was very I know um, I've referred to many of the other previous podcast episodes. but As I said, I have listened to them all. I'm glad uh, you're listening. Heard, it's good uh, test. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When I um, I was so impressed by Charu um, Gandhi. I mean, wow, yeah. such a powerhouse. Yeah. Um, and her five year plan, which she in I 3 know. I'm like, whoa, go. I, know. I mean. So, so I mean, I've literally sent it to everyone I know. Like, you have to listen to this episode. She is amazing. She's such a dynamite.
0: Well, I'm glad you're sharing, <laughs> but the, her five year plan is it's it's kind of people's lifetime career plan. Um,
1: completely. It, completely.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think it um, just goes to show that sometimes people they just think big and that's it but I, i'd also thing. like to say because i think this is really important for people listening being small has its advantages you know you're agile you have less stress of meeting payroll um you know and the actually game. sometimes so i don't
1: have those yeah. overheads i don't have any of that yeah so yeah totally. and
0: and actually the size of your team or the size of your studio doesn't always make you happier and it doesn't always make you earn more and it just adds on to all of those other plates that you're spinning so i think there's still you know there's validity in keeping small and i think people should feel able to do that so you know
1: totally i think i think there's i think there's there's the whole you have you imagine yourself you compare yourself to these ginormous studios or the mcgee's or something like Mm. this and you're just like whoa they have you know this empire of interior design i'm just like well yes but they also have uh, the headache that goes with that yep. size of empire. So yep. actually, figure out what's best for you. Because oh. as I said, look inside rather than looking outside and saying, "Oh, I have to be that size." Yeah. or I want to be that size, which is fine. And it's also fine if you want to and you work towards it, and then realize that it's not for yes. you. Because it's okay to re to pivot. It's yeah. okay to rethink yeah. yourself. It's absolutely fine. Mm. And it's not a like it's not a failure in terms of the dirty word. It is an opportunity to be like, I've done mm. that. Yeah this is where I want yeah. to be now. So that's absolutely yeah. fine as well. So I think people just need to reassess themselves and their mm. priorities. So, you know, we have, we've just adopted a mm. little boy. Um, so, you know, that's, that is also a big focus of mine yeah. at the moment, which is, you know, getting, getting my head around that being, being yeah. a dad. And, and um, and that's a big change for me. Uh, so I, I need I need to be sensitive towards that because yeah. you can't just say, "Well, I'm just going to continue growing my interior design empire regardless yeah. of what's happening in my yeah. personal life." It's,
0: it's, you know, it's, um, it's a big part of your life. Yeah, definitely. Oh, Peter, it's been lovely talking to you. I love your story, um, and I can relate to so much of what you said. Um, it's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on. I really appreciate it
1: oh no thank you so much for having me i could jabber on for ages so please i feel free to edit many of these things out
0: that's not my job but we'll um we'll be fine i'm sure okay thank you oh i liked talking to peter he says it as he sees it doesn't he and that's so well it's just reassuring isn't it because um he's down to earth and i found it um really interesting how he's explaining really that he's a stickler for quality and trying to stand up to people that work in the wider project team that that maybe let him down. Um, But also he's doing all of this on his own, all of those samples and things he's signing off and his socials and his client meetings and that's really hard. Anybody out there that's doing this on your own, hats off to you really I'm a fraud, I have a team. Um, And so, you know, I know how hard it is when you're on your own, because that's where at one time or another, all of us started. Um, And I think that there's this um, misconception that we need to have a big studio and a big team. And it's not always true. I think there's a lot of satisfaction from, you know, being small and keeping things constrained. But I also really like how Peter can, he can really, you know, say as he sees it in relation to the the veil of the industry and the influence with the cushion and the curtain isn't that just the case you know that's not the real world that we're living and it's just quite nice to call it out a little bit um because it is hard and we do do a whole lot more than just make spaces look pretty thank you peter it's been great thank you for joining me I have loved having you here with me on the If These Walls Could Talk podcast. If you are a designer and would like to hear more conversations from other design professionals, from the kind of people who at one time or another have been right where you are, then I do hope you will follow the show and listen again in two weeks time. I'll be right here, wherever you would usually find your podcasts. Just search for If These Walls Could Talk by The Business of Interiors. If you would like to be a guest on the podcast, talk about sponsoring the show or work with me please reach me at hello at the business of finally it means a lot to the success of this show if you could follow leave a review and share this program amongst your design community this show is sponsored by rachel usher interior design thank you so much for joining me